how is World War One reenacting different from your experience in World War Two? It's so drastically different. It's kind of hard to comprehend. Hey everybody, this is Chris here again with another episode of the Reenactors Corner Podcast. For our special guest today, we've got Casey once again. Casey, thanks for coming back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. So, uh, big in the news, the film All Quiet on the Western Front, which is, of course, a uh, fictionalized film about World War One, won a bunch of Oscars. Casey, I know you and I have both seen this movie, we've talked about it, and I thought maybe we could discuss it a little bit for the podcast audience and just kind of talk about what our what our thoughts were about the movie all right sounds good uh i saw the movie actually before it came out on netflix i was fortunate enough to have a movie theater not too far away from where i live that was playing it on a limited basis i actually went and saw it with philly graf who is another member of my reenactment group and uh look i i thought it was a great movie i really enjoyed it i I was on the edge of my seat. I really liked the uh, visual aspect. I liked how they depicted the brutal realities of trench warfare. I thought that the pacing was good. I thought that the music was good, the sound. I mean, for me, um, you know, maybe not the best war movie I ever saw, but I thought it was up there. I thought it, it kind of hit all the marks that I'm looking for when I look at a movie like that. And, uh, I left the theater feeling kind of grossed out and and disturbed at the extremely brutal, visceral, hyper-realistic depiction of uh, hand-to-hand combat in World War One. And I, I think that's a good thing. You know, I like when movies kind of don't flinch and, and don't really sugarcoat it. I don't think that you could make the claim that this movie presented any kind of idealized picture of World War One or a caricature of it. And I think that that is a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's funny you say that. I actually saw the movie. I had looked it up. Like it was probably about a week before it came out, and I found a theater also by my house. And when I had gone, it was only me and one other person in the theater, and um, it was one of those like IMAX, uh, like the heavy surround sound or whatever. And yeah, I I was I was very surprised at the movie. It, it kind of hit all the the wickets for me as far as war movies go. I'm, I'm happy it wasn't. Um, some big heroic movie um, and just the like you said the visual was uh, very impressive and like for me the sounds is really what made it for me um, obviously being on that that giant screen um, but that th- those sounds with the artillery and uh, machine gun fire rifle fire uh, just the way it was in the theater uh, really you know really did it for me my favorite part of the movie was actually the very first scene um, where it starts off with some beautiful kind of nature and landscape scenery. It shows some baby foxes and their mother in a den and some forest stuff. And then it kind of transitions to a muddy open area covered with human bodies that are being kind of periodically uh, riddled with machine gun fire and then it goes into this world war one trench soldiers are going over the top and it follows this one soldier um, as he's advancing towards the enemy lines right up until the moment when he starts to engage in hand-to-hand combat with a french soldier and it's the screen suddenly goes to black and it says all quiet on the western front and i was just like blown away by that whole sequence like um when it goes to black because of the nature of human eyesight the persistence of vision like you still see the horrified grimace on the face of the french soldier who's being subjected to this intense brutal war violence and i was just like that to me set the tone for what this movie was going to be i thought that was really well done and clever yeah i kind of hit the nail on the head um yeah when i saw it the like you said like the uh the nature scenes with foxes and i was like all right like to be honest i was like am i I in the right like movie theater 
and uh you know and then I, after i realized once it gets to the uh it has that panning panning over the no man's land with the uh and it starts firing machine guns and hitting the ground and everything i was like okay and then i understood why they did that showing like what was out there and then what's going on somewhere else in the world and uh yeah hearing those first machine gun uh rounds hit and everything with that surround sound i was completely blown away and like you said and then you're just thrown into the trenches and they go over the top for what i assume would be a counteroffensive. And uh, having the screen go black, I was like, man. I was like, that's a hell of a way to open up a, a movie. Sure, it was powerful. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, for the people who have seen it, you know, how it goes, it, it has that uh, overwhelming music that keeps going on throughout, throughout it um, and shows the uniforms being refurbished and everything and cleaned and reissued, and I... I I immediately thought of you, Chris, just because I know. I loved it. I really did. I was so pleased when I realized what they were showing. Um, everything about that, the, the bundles of the bloody uniforms, the process of washing them, um, handing them to women working on treadle sewing machines in like giant banks in a factory setting. Uh, and they're, they're fixing the damage to the uniforms that those kind of details to see that in a feature film. I mean, that's as, as you know, Casey, I, I really like kind of that whole, that aspect of material culture, you know, the understanding of kind of how these things were, issued in the lives that these objects led in the reality of war, I find that stuff really compelling. And if you had even said to me, well, do you think that this could be shown in a film in a way that would kind of get the message across without seeming just like a total nerd thing? Uh, I would probably say I didn't think it was possible, but they did it. And that was really cool. Yeah. As soon as I saw that, I, I knew I was like, man, Chris is going to get his rocks off by seeing this. Cause like you said, <laughs> I had never seen, and I never, just like you said, I would never think that something as such of a minor detail like that being in a feature film, like I, I wouldn't have believed it. And it's, uh, it's such a cool thing, especially with like how back then there was like a no waste on anything, especially within the German army, within both world wars. But I, I, when I saw it, I was like, man, that's so fucking cool to see that. Um, I loved it. And, you know, somebody who knows more about this and who knows more about World War One than I do might look at that and say, well, actually, when they washed uniforms, you know, they used a different style of tub. And, you know, maybe that sewing machine is from 1919 and, and therefore incorrect or something like, I don't know if that's the case or not. But to me, it's like these these kind of little details aren't really what I care about. To me, I care more about just like the visual aspect the the camera work the angles that they choose the you know how they choose to show um a uniform that has been worn heavily how they choose to do the makeup the costuming you know the aesthetic choices that the filmmaker made to me those things are more important than like um exactly what kind of insignia that the actors are wearing or exactly what model of helmet or something like that Oh, I completely agree. Um, it is nice to have, you know, we've all seen movies out there that are less authentic than others. Um, but, I mean, I'm not a, an expert on World War One German stuff, but uh, to me it looked, it looked pretty good. Um, I didn't see anything that stood out to me. And, yeah, to see, like, how the uniforms were, how the, the actual actors were distressed and their makeup and everything else. And like, it really just, it, it set the tone for that, like horror world war one, like 1917, 1918, uh, you know, vibe to it. And it, you know, it really sets, it, it really sets the pace of the film to see just like how, and I'm sure we'll get into this just from when they go from like, it starts off in that world war one battlefield. And like, I think it was like 1916. Uh, and then it, two years later fly by, but, uh, you know, seeing these new recruits and then like within their first, uh, action in the, the, the meat grinder of world war one and trench warfare on the Western front, you know, you just see how these, how these people get turned in their uniforms and everything else. And just the way they look. And I think they, I really think they nail that. 
Comparing it to the book, you know, I understand that um, this is a movie that's made for 21st century audiences and that the the director has no um, absolute duty to be absolutely faithful to the book. I thought that the movie was great. I did find myself a little bit wishing that they had included some of that basic training stuff with Himmelstos um, that I think was done very well in the 1930 version of All Quiet on the Western Front, just because I, I kind of am interested in that from a historical point of view. Um, but I, I certainly think that uh, choosing kind of to start it with his the main character sort of his decision to enlist and then jumping almost immediately from there to his first battlefield experiences uh, you know i understand why they did that yeah i agree i mean i can see why i know a lot of people didn't didn't like that they didn't include the the basic training scenes um but it, it had been done two movies before even though this was the first adaptation in the actual native language and uh I understand why they did it because it's it's so lost on like modern culture. I know in Europe, World War One still that kind of a big thing, or at least they were taught it in schools. But like here in uh, the United States, it's really not. Like I I actually asked a couple of friends when we were I was talking about talking about it the other day, and uh, like they they don't know anything, and um, I guess where they traded the basic training scenes where they did like the uh, negotiating with the po politicians at the end of the war, um, scenes and stuff. And I understand why they did that just to try to give like a grasp on like how, cause it's an anti-war film. So they're trying to grasp like how futile it was that it, like you got politicians trying to, you know, end the war on the, the terms that they want and you have soldiers dying on both sides and whatever else. And I understood that that's, and it really does hit home especially for an audience that may or may not know much about World War One, But, I mean, you lose you lose scenes like the basic training scenes because, you know, the movie was already long enough. But if you add, if you try to encompass all that, it would have been tough. I would have actually loved to have seen this done as a miniseries, as a six-hour treatment of this thing with the same actors and the same production quality. I think that would have been really cool. Oh, I think there would have been a lot more depth to the characters and situations that they were in. I think they did still a pretty good job, but I, I, I can speak for a lot of World War One reenactors that like we're we're dying for for a uh, some sort of miniseries that's done, uh, with you know a big budget and everything, kind of like how the Pacific Band of Brothers and soon to be the Masters of the Air Generation War stuff like that. Like I think it would really hit home. Sure, it, it kind of. Uh... The, the hope of it as the war to end all wars proved to be futile as the world was engaged in this uh, kind of bigger version of sort of the same deal only a generation later. So um, I wear my heart on my sleeve about this. I am a World War II guy. You know, I'm not really just like a, a war enthusiast. Not really even like a movie enthusiast while we're on the topic of it, but I am definitely a World War II enthusiast. And so... Um, I, I love the World War II stuff, but you know, I I think that uh, if there's going to be a, a World War One movie like this, I'll try to check it out. Um, I would certainly watch a World War One miniseries. Uh, I like the look of the uh, World War One pattern German helmets. I think that all of that stuff looks really cool. All of the aesthetic things that we sort of think about when we kind of envision what embodies trench warfare where you've got duck boards and mud and bunkers I think all of that stuff makes for really cool imagery and uh, photos that I think are frankly uh, beautiful in their sort of bleak desperate uh, dirty nature and uh, and on that count certainly this movie was satisfying to me yeah, um, I mean, I was the same with you. I was I was a World War One or World War Two, excuse me, uh, enthusiast through and through. And uh, as time went on, I kind of got more into World War One. But um, I mean, there is like one miniseries out there. I want to say it's called like Our First War or Our First World War or something like that or First World War. I want to say it was like a BBC miniseries, but it wasn't like it didn't follow each episode. I want to say followed like a different character in a different scenario like i remember there was like one it was like british based and it was like 
someone in like a Mark One tank or something like that. Uh, but I mean, for a while we we never thought that there would be a World War Two German miniseries, and after Band of Brothers and stuff, we we all wanted it, and Generation War came out. So I mean, I gotta think that somewhere down the line, some sort of history history enthusiast that is a director or whatever else who has this the drive will you know we'll do a big one but i'm hoping with the uh you know the the films are slowly starting to come out and i know like the 1917 film that came out uh from sean mendez that was during 2019 which is right after like the what they call the centennial years so like the 100 year anniversary from ni- from 2014 to 2018 uh, where you saw a bigger interest in World War One, um, I'm hoping that with the with 1917 and the new adaptation and All Quiet, will kind of spark other interests and see that you know it can be done, because I, I I know a lot of people like those films, and I'm I'm really hoping because it would be cool to see the spotlight on World War One just because uh, once you start like looking into it, there is really not a lot of films. Um, and I'll get into that, but like, like for instance, uh, everyone in the United States, at least, that knows anything about Marine Corps history, about like Bella Wood, in June of nineteen eighteen, like there's no movies about that. There's there's hardly any movies about anything in the American uh, Expeditionary Forces, which is just surprising. Sure. After, a lot of times when I was watching All Quiet on the Western Front in the theater, I wasn't really thinking about it, like as a movie like I wasn't really trying to take in like choices that the director made or like how they chose to weather or make the uniforms look different to show that it's very cold or like how they did the makeup and I I wanted to watch the movie again with a focus on those technical aspects because I find stuff like that inspirational for my own reenactment impressions and for reenactment photography and just kind of art projects in general. So um, I did watch it again when it came out on Netflix, and I was really struck by how different the experience was watching it on the small screen. I mean, it just had so much more impact to me um, in a movie theater. And that's probably not a surprise to anyone to hear that when you're watching, you know, when, when the person who is being blown apart, uh, by artillery is, is 30 feet tall or whatever, it's gonna, it's gonna feel different on like a lizard brain level of the human mind than if you're, uh, watching, a, a screen that's in your bedroom or whatever. Um, what about you, Casey? Did you watch it again after you saw it in the theater? Yeah, I did. Um, so kind of to, I I was during the film when I watched it in theater I had taken like mental notes like oh when I saw stuff I you know about the coldness or you know the uniforms and stuff I did make a mental note but like you know after you see a movie for the first time and that was fairly impactful as that one there's a lot to take in I know I did make mental notes but it was so much to take in that I was like trying to remember it and uh, I was. I was in the same boat. Like when I watched it, I was, I told everyone about it. I was like, this, this film was incredible. Like it was, it, I was very, very uh, nervous before I saw it. Cause I didn't know how the adaptation in the modern age was going to be, but um, it, you know, exceeded it. And when I saw it, <laughs> the night it came out, I, I, I had my wife and I watch it and, uh, she thought it was great. She thought it was a good movie, and she's she's not big into war movies, but she appreciated it for what it was. And I was like thinking to myself, like, man, like this, it was good to like kind of like, oh, that's what I remember. Oh, like that's what I had kind of made a mental note about. But it wasn't as nearly as impactful. I think, uh, I being on the big screen for sure. But I I want to say it was the audio for me. The audio for me, with the 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 shells hitting and the the theater shaking and the the bullet cracks and hitting the dirt and uh, the rifle fire and everything else like that, that really made it for me. And I was, I was like, man, people are going to think this is a good movie, but it's, I don't know. Yeah. So like I was thinking when I was watching it a little bit about reenacting and, and I mean that in a couple of different ways. First of all, 
I was wondering if this movie, which I knew a lot of people would see, would lead to a spiked interest in World War One and maybe in World War One reenacting. And I felt like I felt at the time like it probably wouldn't because what was being shown was so basically horrible. I mean, this thing, this movie was basically um, disgusting. You know, it's akin in some ways to a horror movie. And I'm watching it and I'm thinking, who in their right mind is going to see this kind of imagery um, and think, man, I really would love to experience something like that. You know, and, and, and I actually kind of expanded that thought to World War II reenacting as well. Like, you know, sometimes I do, th- this could be like a whole other episode and, and it's kind of a uh, sort of a Dead Sea scroll of my own personal mental uh, convolutions. But like, you know, does, does World War II reenacting glamorize war? Does it present an idealized caricature of war is there a moral issue with playing make-believe and having fun uh when you're you're trying to present what was uh the worst experience that most of these people ever went through in their whole lives and you know what what was the final moments of a a lot of lives for millions and millions of people um but of course it seems that i was wrong because i noticed that uh very shortly after the film came out on Netflix, like German Helmets Inc., who is a vendor that I have used before for restored helmets for reenacting, announced that they were totally sold out out of all of their M16, M18 helmet shells, and they didn't know when they were going to be able to restock. So um, I think it did have some you know, positive effects on the interest levels. And, and maybe part of that is just like a personal thing, like maybe I took the movie differently than how the majority of people would take it. Or maybe part of it is because seeing it in the theater was, I think, a lot more, created a lot more of an emotional reaction than watching it on the small screen. I really do think that if I'd seen it on Netflix on my TV for the first time, I probably wouldn't have been so kind of rattled by it. So, yeah, I agree with you as far as seeing it on the, on the big screen. Um, it definitely had a, a bigger impact on me than it did seeing it on my TV. But, like, if we look at other movies and other miniseries, like, uh, I'll name two. Like, so, like, Stalingrad, for instance, uh, the 90s one. That movie was, like, that movie was great um, on many aspects. But it was also, it did show, like, the horrors of, uh, you know, what they dealt with, especially when the winter finally came. And I'm, sh- I know that's probably one of the best, one of the more favorite movies in most World War II German reenactors' minds. And another one, the uh, the HBO, HBO The Pacific, um, though it did have like this triumphant United States, like the Marine Corps, um, it did also show the horrors of the Pacific and how awful it was. But yet that still, you know, motivated people. Um, and I guess. If people are already looking in, looking in to get into reenacting, nothing's really like stuff like this is only going to make them want to get into it more. Um, because we all know that if you, you know, watch movies or into history, there's not a lot of World War One movies, and especially not a lot of big picture ones. Uh, as of late, so having that, even though it does show the absolute horrors of World War One. I mean, when I was watching, I was like, oh, that's cool. That's, you know, they're in the trenches and it shows. There was a lot of cool vibes to me that I thought I was like, man, this makes me want to go out and do a reenactment soon. So I don't know. I think your average person that would never want to, that never considered getting into reenacting, they might be like, "Eh, I don't know. But for the people who are already into reenacting or like considering it and they're just waiting for whatever reason, I, I, I don't know. I don't think it will shy them away from it those are some really good points especially your point about that if someone's already into reenacting and then they see a depiction of something historical on a feature film that looks really compelling and has attractive looking visual aspects and like you say has has a vibe that that's is evocative of whatever that they're into you know that that might be something that they decide to get into based on a movie i mean ultimately uh Movies are a big factor that drives interest and interest drives like reenacting numbers, right? I mean, World War II reenactment did see this huge growth period in 
the late '90s, early 2000s, with stuff like Saving Private Ryan and uh, the Band of Brothers miniseries. That was like not a coincidence. Yeah, I can't agree more. And like, let's 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 be honest. Like, <laughs> though the movie was like pretty grim and like you know rough rough afterwards, um, you know throughout the whole movie. Like, I I remember leaving the theaters silent i I couldn't believe what i'd just seen just because of how rough it was and that they showed it um which i i really did appreciate but um none of us and i know it's probably been said before on the podcast but like none of us really do true world war ii world war one whatever war you're reenacting like we don't we don't do true combat it's it's all for fun and we're trying to uh you know be these people that fought in these awful, awful wars. But if anyone, any one of us were subjected to the actual horrors of combat in these different types of ages, like, I don't think any of us would want to relive that, <laughs> like, or do it. But sure. It's, it's rough. Yeah. And certainly, uh, watching that movie, uh, Obviously, I understand that what I saw there is a fictionalized dramatization and is not actually World War One combat. But I mean, just to see uh, people getting blown up like that and uh, set on fire and have their heads blown off and just the rivers of blood and stuff. I mean, these are it's just I mean, th- this probably sounds absolutely uh, stupid of me to say, but I think it is possible to lose sight of the horrible reality of war. I mean, I'll, I'll just be totally honest here. When you are um, spending your time kind of researching what these people ate and how they put up tents, you know, sometimes you can lose sight of the the most visceral, sort of most basic aspects of war that, like, I- intrigued me most when I was a child. You know, I think my, my very first... The very first World War II veteran that I ever talked to was my grandfather, and I think the very first question I ever asked him when I found out that he had been in a war after I recovered from my shock as a little kid that my grandfather had been in this war was, did you kill anybody? You know, because that's really what war is. It's killing people. That's the deal. It's always a tough question to ask, but uh, no, I agree. He was like, yeah, I did. It was him or me. And I was like, oh my God, you know, my grandfather was such a nice guy, such a gentle, kind man. And to think of him uh, as a soldier in combat was, you know, I I only knew him as an old man, you know, it blew my mind. Yeah, it's never a tough question to ask. I mean, it's, (laughs) people forget that, you know, people at it do this type of thing in war and that dirty business. Yeah. And it's like, look, I get it. You know, some, some people, someone is going to like send me a message because I hear this and they're like, I just can't believe that you like forgot that world war two was actually like a violent conflict. And it's like, no, I didn't forget this, but like there, there is a way sort of to compartmentalize things in your mind, you know, where I'm, I'm looking at a photo or a document and, um, and studying it versus kind of being confronted with a hyper-realistic visual representation of this bestial slaughter that was the reality for a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We all, we all look into the, like the material culture and whatever else. And we look into like specific battles when we're doing reenactments and we get in the nitty gritty, but we often forget that like, Hey, this was like a, a slaughterhouse. Like it was right. so awful. And you know, you had friends and, uh, you know, everyone else and, you know, the family members that were back home and everything else just and like people dying every single day by the thousands. And it, it, you you never really think about it by that. But when you're confronted by it, it's like, oh, shit, like <laughs> that's rough. It's... And I think, you know, for me, part of the reason for that is like having one blanket and like eating cabbage soup. These are things that I can understand, like killing a person with an entrenching tool is like not something that I can relate to. So, you know, no. And that's, that's never something that any reenactor can really truly like we can fake close combat and, you know, shooting at each other. But like the, the pure horror of like people coming at you or you going towards them where you're, you're faced with getting shot at and like bullets whistling and artillery and everything else. And then it's like, it's either going to be me or that person. It's just, it, it can't be comprehended unless you've lived it. I've heard it a million times and by veterans and books and memoirs and everything else, but it's just, 
it's never comprehensible unless you've lived it. Um, no, I totally so believe it, that. At least, you know, what I've heard, but, you know, it's just, it, it's always going to be romanticized by the, unless it's by the people that have actually lived it. Um, so I guess kind of summing up my thoughts about the movie All Quiet on the Western Front, if you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend checking it out. Um, you know, I, I don't think we really gave away too many spoilers. I mean, everyone kind of knows how this story ends. Um, I did see a lot of mixed reviews from reenactors. I did see some people uh, complaining about some authenticity issues that totally went over my head. And like I say, some people didn't like that it strayed so far from the book, which was kind of a whatever thing for me. But um, yeah, definitely worth watching as far as I'm concerned. And uh you know, people can make their own opinions about it. I'm not a movie critic, but to me, I just thought it was beautiful. I thought it was harrowing. I thought it was compelling. And uh, I certainly was, I thought it was a good use of my time to check it out. Yeah, I agree. I'm, uh, I'm, I, I do like watching movies and everything, especially war movies, just like I'm sure most listeners do. And uh, I understood that it straight away from the book, but I, like I said earlier, I, I, I agreed with it to an extent just because of how out of the minds of World War One is the most modern people are, modern watchers uh, of the movie. But I mean it was it was terrifying. It was it, it had me on the edge of my seat the whole time. I had pretty much had anxiety the whole time of the, the movie. And uh yeah. you know, I, I I think it I think it really nailed as far as cinema can of the horrors of war and like it really did. Um, it, it did it for me. I really loved it. Um, I, I would say, sure, maybe I'll get criticism on this, but whatever. Don't care. Um, it was probably one of the better war movies I've seen in a while, if not one of the best. Top, definitely in the top five for me, but it's not It's not an easy watch. It's not something I would sit down and watch every, every couple months or whatever. I agree with that. You know, it's not my, my personal favorite war movie or anything, but it is up there. Uh, my favorite World War One movie, actually, is a movie called Death Watch. Have you ever seen that one, Casey? I haven't. What, what's it it's, about? It's like a horror movie. It is uh, really weird, and it has kind of like a nebulous ending that I don't really understand. Um, it, I think it came out in the 90s. But it has just tons and tons of, I think, great scenes of it kind of revolves around um, some British troops who get separated from their unit during uh, a gas attack. And they basically um, find their way to an abandoned section of enemy trench and they aren't able to make contact with uh with anybody and the movie kind of goes from there and it's just got a really cool atmosphere that's one of the things i really like about a movie is i don't even really care about the movie as like the story i don't care about as much as like does this movie kind of have an immersive atmosphere does it build some kind of like emotion um in the mind of the viewer and that movie death watch definitely does for me so you should check that out casey I definitely will. I would say I got a top three as far as uh, World War One movies, and I would say the first one is uh, Lost Battalion. Uh, I think that was a fantastic movie. Um, one of the only movies that show like the true AAF, and then I would say the second is Sergeant York. It's just a classic story. Um, I just it is. You know, I know it's like propaganda for World War, World War Two that since it came out in uh, nineteen forty one, but I just really like the story of it, whether it be uh, realistic or not. And then uh, I would say my favorite movie from World War One would be uh, the Trench, which is with uh, Daniel Craig, and it's uh, the they're all British soldiers, a group of them. It was like the Pals Regiment, uh, where like all all sorts of soldiers came from the same town. And it was on the eve of the Somme, and they pretty much like the whole movie just based around them in a trench, waiting for. They were the. They were. The last holding of the trench because they would rotate every few days before the Somme uh, offensive started, and then they go over the top, and they pretty much all get killed. But uh, I, I don't know. I just really like the whole the the waiting aspect of it, and how how terrifying and monotonous it was. Sounds cool. I never saw either of those movies. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty good. Pretty good stuff there. Uh, most of them were on, I think, Amazon Prime. 
Okay, cool. I'll check it out. So, Casey, you have been reenacting World War I for a little while. We talked about some of your misadventures in World War I reenacting on the uh, Patreon-exclusive episode that came out recently. But what we didn't really talk about on the Patreon-exclusive episode was just kind of how you got interested in World War I uh, reenacting and what kind of impression that you do and uh, all about that. So let's, let's hear about it. What, how'd you get started with deciding to do World War I? Okay, uh, so I have been in the U.S. military for almost 11 years now, specifically the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, I was a reservist for six years and then went active duty um, in 2018. But uh, I had been, you know, like most Marines that are interested in uh, the United States Marine Corps history, I was interested in World War World War One and everything they did, and I actually started buying an impression in 2017, and uh, I bought most of the impression. It was the rifle that was like the rifle and boots. I want to say was like the last thing that I needed to buy, and then um, life hit. I had a I had my car. I had a, it car issues and everything else, and I ended up having to sell the kit, which is really disappointing. And then one of my friends. And I'd always wanted to get back into it. Um, and then once I went active duty and had a more steady schedule, because um, that was another thing when I when I got back into it, I really didn't know if I was going to be able to make the two Great War Association events that happen. Um, like we mentioned in the Discord, the one happens in the spring and one happens in the fall, uh, April and November. And so eventually my friend was like, one of my close friends, he was like, man, you should really get into it. I'm like, all right, well, I got the money. Uh, so I, I went on Gunbroker. I bought a 1903 and then I literally, I think I bought this is probably the fastest I've ever put together a kit. And I put it together a kit in about three weeks, an entire kit. I'm talking pack, personal kit, um, uniforms, you name it, three weeks, rifle and all, which was, uh, that's crazy. You know. Yeah, I I went uh, I I about went about how much in. money are we talking, Casey? Like how, how expensive <laughs> is the World War 1 United States Marine Corps kit that you got? So the rifle's the most expensive part because it's a uh most I would say about 90% of Marines were issued 1903 rifles where the US Army was issued the uh model of 1917 rifle or some people know it as the 1917 Eddie Stone or whatever, but it's it's the M1917 rifle. Um, the Marines were issued it, but regardless, uh, that rifle was I had just bought off Gunbroker was a thousand dollars, and I I had all this money from I just got home from deployment. It was a thousand dollars, and after cleaning it up, I realized it was it was a 19. I only bought it because it was a 1918 dated rifle that had all the attributes of. Uh, World War One rifle, but then after cleaning up, I found out that like ninety percent chance after posting on the forums that it was a World War Two used, uh, refurbished Marine Corps rifle, which was cool. But uh, so it was thousand bucks there, and I want to say it's about another twelve to fifteen hundred, probably about twelve hundred dollars for everything like pack, uniform, putties, uh, boots personal items, uh, all the tins and everything, like food, everything. It might have even been like, I want to say it was like maybe a close, might even been a thousand, but it was probably about a $2,000 investment in everything, helmet and all. Um, but yeah, when my friend was doing it, he finally kind of pushed me over the edge because I've been thinking about it for a while. When I was on deployment, I was thinking about it. And then when he, he kind of pushed me to it, kind of called my bluff and I was like, all right, screw it. I'll do it. I think a $2,000 investment is probably pretty standard for like a lot of 20th century military impressions, you know, give or take. For sure. And um, I would actually argue that it's slightly cheaper. I just, from my World War II reenacting, where I've been doing it for so long, I like to get into the nitty gritty with the personal items, rations, everything else. But like... A basic, a basic impression, I mean, you get for less than $1,000. Believe it or not, uh, What Price Glory uh, Militaria website actually has a lot of their stuff for pretty cheap. They made it pretty affordable, so you could probably do for 
seven to eight hundred dollars minus the rifle. How much of the stuff that you got was reproduction and how much was original stuff? Uh most of it. So like any field gear I had I did buy an original uh cartridge belt, a nineteen ten cartridge belt, which is like the Millis one. I don't know if you're familiar with that they have like at the bottom of the cartridge belt where they're like puckered. Um yeah. they don't they don't really make reproductions of those. Um since then I bought re- you know, reproductions of, uh, they have all sorts of different stuff, but I would say about 90% of it was reproductions. Um, I did buy some original stuff. Uh, most of the tins, like the bacon tin, condiment tin, stuff like that, that's original. Um, but most of the usable stuff that gets wear and tear, um, was a reproduction. Your friend who got you into the hobby or who got you into the the world or one side of it was was he wanting you to join the unit that he was already in so it's a funny story when i had joined when i had tried getting into it in uh 2017 i had contacted the unit that i ended up joining and i talked to the unit commander uh tom frezza great great guy he does a lot of uh he does like navy and marine corps stuff from you know the 1800s on onwards and it just fell apart like i said before and then um uh, Joe Lombardo is the guy that kind of contacted me. He does a, I know you know him. He does a Navy Corman impression and he had kind of called my bluff on it. So I was like, all right, let's do it. Um, he kind of like, I had been planning on doing it for a while, but it was kind of one of those things you're like just constantly putting off. And then he kind of pressured me into doing it, which I'm not complaining and finally got into it. And I, I love it. That's cool. So what is the unit that you wound up joining? So we reenact uh, the 78th company of uh, 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines uh, of the 4th Marine Brigade and the 2nd uh, Division. The unit uh, these days is 2-6 um, Marines, so 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines. And in World War II, they only had a small unit of Marines, uh, that, what they called the 4th Marine Brigade which fell under the second division. Um, they had a couple different divisions that were over in France, uh, but that was, that was ours. Are a lot of the guys that are in the group also like you, actual Marines or, uh, are most of the people just, uh, just LARPers like me? Um, I would say it's probably about split 50, 50. We have a couple different guys, older guys that are Marines. Our unit leader now, he, uh, was a Marine. Um, he got out and he's, I think he's doing the Air Force now, but, uh, Air Force Reserve. But yeah, I mean, the original unit leader, Tom, he was, he was a Marine. He just, uh, he works in actually the Naval Yard in Washington as a part of the museum, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's split 50, 50. We have, you know, stuff, uh, different, different people. Uh, actually one of the guys in our unit, uh, I think he does the, uh, he has the page of the chow line. Go check him out. Uh, Sure, he might like that or not like that, but I shouted him out. But uh, yeah, Jeremiah, he's, I mean, he's not a Marine. He just really appreciates Marine Corps history. There's plenty of people that just love the Marine Corps history in World War One and wanted to join the unit. Are there other uh, United States Marines units that also participate in those uh, Great War Association events at Newville, Pennsylvania? Uh, there's only one other. It's the uh, 67th Company. Um, I don't think they're in the same battalion. I want to say, I forget. I, I don't want to be wrong. I just, I'm drawing a blank on it right now, but they're in the 67th company, uh, which they usually kind of get put together uh, since we are the bigger bigger of the two units uh, and hang up and they don't have a trench line like that we do. So we end up getting uh, stuck together, which is totally fine. It's, it's great to have them on board. But uh, yeah, it's pretty much only two Marine Corps units and, as far as the Great War Association, I know there's other units that do stuff in like other places, but around how many guys are in your World War One crew, Casey? I think at the last unit we, I mean, I hadn't been there. I I was here when I went to Newville that the centennial years, as they call it, so from 2014 to 2018 was was the big the big push for World War One reenacting at the Great War Association in Pennsylvania, that they had a lot more numbers, but. Uh, as far as I've seen the biggest unit or the biggest turnout that we've had was probably about 15 people, 
I know there's been more, but yeah, we had about 15 people, and as low as six or seven, depending on the event. That's a solid crew. I can relate to reenacting with that kind of size of a group. It, it's good enough where we can do small unit leadership, where we can have like two small depleted squads and do what we want and everything else. You guys have your own assigned section of the trench line at the uh, at the site. Yeah, so we do. We actually have quite a quite a bit now. Uh, so we had our own bivouac site, which is um, on the site. We have pretty much a little plot of land that's spread out. We don't have anything built on it. Where we usually pitch tents pup tents and everything else and we cook and um our unit members will go up and you know get water get because we have a water pump right by there and get food and relax and stuff when things are good things are kind of quiet on the uh the front and then uh we have our own trench line that they had built a couple years ago um with shell holes out in front where we have you know uh observation points and everything else like pretty much right on in no man's land with barbed wire and everything and then we actually this year uh one of our unit members he had bought uh there was a right at the entrance there's a kind of like a barracks building that uh one of the units was using they they were put up for sale so we uh one of the unit members actually bought it for us which is really awesome and uh we kind of use it as a uh like a barracks type of thing and we've kind of made it so it's you know you only spent in world war one you only spent probably like four or five days on the, in the actual lines and uh unless you want an offensive and i can get into that as far as like the logistics of it but we kind of deemed it as like a like a french like going back to like a french town kind of off the lines um so at, at night we'll it, we just bought it this is our fr- last event was our first event that we actually had it and were able to use it popes people still stayed at the bivouac and then we were considering building some sort of dugout in our trench line to kind of help, you know, have a place to stay when it's cold and everything else and people want to stay out on the trench line. Casey, you're like a longtime World War II reenactor at this point. How is World War One reenacting different from your experience in World War II? I've only had experience as far as World War One reenacting at this one site. It's so drastically different. It's kind of hard to comprehend. The way I uh, think of it as is like the Great War Association in Pennsylvania is kind of like the gap of uh, World War II. And if any listeners, and I'm sure I know you know, like the gap was like the the place to be. And here it's like everyone in the country of the, the U.S. comes and comes to this place and they bring the vehicles, they bring everything they've got. It's it's definitely has a gap vibe to it, but it, yet it's more of in a field condition. And the Great War Association is uh, an association, so it everyone pays into it and their members, and uh, they have pre-established trench lines and everything else, and it's pretty much what your unit owns, and they maintain their own plot of trench line and bunkers, and it, if they want to build a bunker like we want to uh, in our trench line, like a little dugout, like it has to get approved through the whole Great War Association, G8, and... Uh, once it gets approved, you know, building can happen and everything else, but it, it, it's its own entity. It's unlike the gap. It, if I'm comparing to any other reenactment, it's really nothing like I've ever experienced. What about like the authenticity level? I know that, uh, world war one reenacting kind of has presented itself as sort of the reenactors reenactment. Uh, at times some people say that it's kind of an elite level of reenacting, um, you know, what, what's your take having, having also done other, other times? So I can only speak from my, my standpoint because I do Marine Corps stuff, but I mean, everyone's kits from the British Canadians and everything else, the German side, they look, they look great. And I do see some stuff that does suck, but, uh, I think the overall feel of the event really helps it, I guess, I guess you would say like, it's just like the gap. It was, you know, you saw some units that, Certain people weren't up to like the best authenticity standards, but it, it really, uh, when it all comes together, it, it, it really nails it. I, I know exactly what you mean with regard to like the gap and other large scale events that I've done where it almost really doesn't matter exactly what the authenticity standards are of every single participant, because really they're just kind of, you know, there are background extras who are basically set dressing in your own um, time travel feeling that you're, that you're personally experiencing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like, so for the last, for, for instance, the last event, we had 700 people register for the event and show up, which is a lot. That's, that's a lot. And, uh, we had, you yeah, know, that's a tremendous amount. Yeah. And we had, uh, they had vehicles, nothing like, you know, tanks or anything, but like we had vehicles and stuff and, uh, you know, just seeing uniformed soldiers marching down the road or in mud and everything else is just really adds to the, to the whole thing. They have field kitchens, um, you name it, they had it. And the, the combat and everything with the, you know, mortars and, uh, Cause they, they allow pyrotechnics on the, on the event. So like you have mortars, flares, uh, grenades, everything else, uh, rifle grenades. It's just everything put together really just makes the event possible. We'd take out some of our pictures from our events and we'd be sharing them with the veterans and you know, they would say, uh, oh, I, I don't remember who this was. Or I, and then we would say, oh, no, no, like, th that's us. A public show battle is a scripted battle where the um, Americans always win. It is the worst thing imaginable when you're in it. So I, I always bring spare kit along, and if, if somebody wanted to try joining the unit for the weekend and, and, and see what it's like, I, I, they would be more than welcome. We, we've always got the kit for that. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. All right. Well, I, I really enjoy uh, hearing you talk about this World War One stuff, Casey. And if you listeners also enjoy hearing this, if you don't already support us with Patreon, you can sign up for five bucks a month and you can listen to our other uh, Patreon exclusive bonus episode this month in which Casey describes how he got basically like a insane life threatening injury uh, at a World War One reenactment event. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Casey, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for coming on and doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great talking. Okay, so to everybody out there, stay safe, and I'll see you in the field. See you in the field. We love hearing your thoughts on the podcast, so why not sign up to the Reenactors Corner on Discord? You'll find a link in the show notes that accompany this episode. And while you're there, perhaps have a think about supporting us via Patreon. Your regular donations, no matter how big or small, really count and help keep us on the air. Thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing the podcast. And we hope that you'll join us here again soon for the next episode of The Reenactors Corner. 